you know, this time of year, um, you are sometimes asked by your colleagues at work or whatever, you are excited about Easter, the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and you try and talk to people who um, maybe are not Christians or uh, they have other religions, other ideas. And, um, you know, you're met with skepticism and unbelief and doubt and... Uh, and they they really wonder why do you actually believe this fairy tale stuff about this man that lived two thousand years ago and has been risen from the dead and and why do you believe that what what is it that is about that that that, that just really appeals to you and you know I I've I've tried to answer that question at times and and this morning I want to try and address this subject of of why I am a Christian, why I believe what we believe, why I have trusted the Bible and the Word of God. And I want to try and, and, and not make this sort of an academic defense of biblical truth or, or uh, I can prove to you that the resurrection took place. I, I, I'm not that type of a thinker. I can't do that sort of stuff. But I guess I'm, where I'm going back to is I was reading in John chapter 9 this morning. And it sort of hit home with me. And there was a blind man who was interrupted by the Lord. And the Lord just made some mud out of spittle. And he rubbed his eyes and he says, you go wash in that pool of Siloam over there. And he didn't know what was happening. And he went there and, and behold, he could see. He's been blind all his life. And when the experts came and the people who didn't like Christ, the skeptics, they tried to challenge him, like, do you really believe that? Do you know what he's like? Do you know anything about his background? Do you, can you really believe that? Can you trust that? And his answer was this. Listen, guys, I don't know. All I know is I was blind, but now I see. Now, this morning, I'm going to be like that simple blind man. I'm going to try and present my reasons for trusting the Bible's message and how it has changed my life. And and I want to sort of just do this simply just to ask you the question and me the question, to whom shall we go? Now, that was a question that was asked uh, one time by, by John. We'll read about it later on. But I want us, first of all, just to be very simple about this. Jesus, or... or God said this through the prophet Isaiah, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And what I am drawn to this morning is the idea that God is inviting us to be sensible, to be reasonable, to think about what we're believing. And uh, the Christian message and this is where I want us to go back on and be, and, and, and trust and have confidence in. The Christian message is the most rational, sensible, and reasonable answer to my need and to your need this morning. Now, we may be challenged by that. And there are a lot of people that think that when you become a Christian and you start going to church, you check your brain at the door. And you leave it out there because Christians don't really have much of a thinking capacity. It's all blind faith. Well, I want to say that's absolute nonsense. The Christian faith, 
the Christian answer to our life is the most reasonable, sensible choice for a human being to make in the light of our circumstances. But when we look at this answer, to whom shall we go? I was thinking of John chapter 6. Let's just read that together. I'm going to read it for you here. John chapter 6, verse 66 says, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Now, this was a time when Jesus taught them something that they found very hard to accept. And a lot of those who were followers of him had turned away. And then he looked at his own disciples and he said, Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, I was thinking, have you ever had doubts about, let's say you're a Christian here today. Have you ever had doubts of why you have become a Christian? What makes you different when you think about it? Here's a young man here in the meeting this morning. He's 30 years old. He's trusted the Lord when he was a young man. And he's going on serving the Lord. Now, what is the difference between what he is? He's a young man raised in a so-called quasi-Christian country. He's been raised to hear the gospel. He's been raised to believe this. What is the difference between him and some young man born in Iran who's never, ever heard the gospel but has been raised with a a faith that is uh, is allegiance, allegiance to Islam, and and that's how he's raised. And have you ever questioned and doubted or thought, am I just a Christian because this is where I live, or because of my circumstances around me, or or do I have something that is really different and distinct and more and more provable or more trustworthy than what that young man has over in Iran? Now, you and I need to ask ourselves the question, question this morning. And I want us to say, who can we go to? Now, we know that the world has to offer right away. I, I, I ship, slipped the slide in earlier. You know, the world offers us an answer to our existence. And I, I, I'm sorry, it's got to make sense to me before I can believe something like that. And, and when, when, when God says, come now, let us reason together, this does not make any sense to me whatsoever. I cannot believe that somehow in some cosmic explosion, life was created out of nothing. It was all an accident. There was no design, no purpose. It just happened. Now that is what the experts are offering you and I as a an explanation for our existence on this planet. Now, I don't know about you. If that satisfies your curiosity, you've got more faith than I do because I don't. You know, I'm thinking, if they use that same rationale in life alone, they would see that that just is impossible. Now, I've got this lovely iPhone 6 here. Now, what if I... Like, I know that this was designed in California and and uh, it's a wonderful product and uh, it always works it doesn't blow up like Samsung's and things like that <laughs> and um, and I'm thinking okay I know the guys that designed this they, they're really smart they're switched on people now that would be an intelligent way of looking at how this thing came about right 
But what if I told you that we don't really believe that? We believe that there was an explosion in Silicon Valley that ignited an aluminum plant and a few other plants, and bada boom, bada bing, out popped a cell phone. Now, that's stupid, isn't it? It's absolute stupidity. And yet that is what you and I have been sold, that this is how you and I got here. just doesn't make sense to me. Maybe it makes sense to you. But I'm a simple guy, and I'm just looking at what uh, uh, that, that, that blind guy did. All I know is I was blind, but now I see. That doesn't make sense. What about the idea of materialism? Now, we know the world is filled with this sort of idea. That you and I, in order for us to be satisfied in life, it means that we need to acquire more things, nicer cars, better clothes, uh, nicer houses, etc., etc. But you and I both know that that is not going to satisfy us. You don't have to go too far in life as you read some of the many people that have all this stuff and still are empty, very, very empty. And then I was thinking... Well, to whom else shall we go? Then there's all these other religions, and, and, and you can go through the whole list of them. And you know, I was thinking about this just the other day. All of these religions, there's hundreds of them, thousands of them, but there's really only two. There's the right way and the wrong way. And most of these happen to be what I see as the wrong way. Now, I'll tell you what the difference is very briefly. Most of these religions... Their salvation is dependent on their own merits and how they can achieve favor with God by changing their life and living a holier life. And somehow at the end of the road, God is going to weigh things up. And yes, your good deeds are pretty good. They outweigh the bad deeds. In you go. That's how, that's how most of these religions work. In fact, most of Christianity is practiced this way. Not biblical Christianity, but that is what most conventional Christian, uh, nominal Christians, that's what they believe. But that biblical Christianity is not man reaching up to God to try and attain to his standards. It's the reverse, really. It's God reaching down to us and saving us at his expense at his work, at his purposes, and we simply have to just believe him and thank him for it. Now, that's basically it. Now, Peter said this, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, that is amazing because this was written before the resurrection took place. And if Peter could be so sure before the resurrection, how much more sure should you and I be today? We believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, I've got three reasons why I am defending the fact that I have trusted Christ. The first one is a historical reason. The second one is a biblical reason. And then the third one is a personal reason. And I want to take my my 20 minutes that I have with you this morning and try and present this to you. So first of all, let's look at the historical reason. No person in history has as much documented evidence regarding his life and work than Jesus of Nazareth. And I'm not just talking about Christian historians. We are talking about non-Christian historians academics that lived in the first century that can attest to the fact that this man lived, 
he died, and some of these historians also say that he rose from the dead, and that his believers uh, believe that, his followers believe that. In 1980, an atheist and investigative journalist, Lee Strobel, applied his journalistic and legal skills to attempt to disprove his wife Leslie's newfound Christian faith. Now, some of you might have sympathy towards this man. You've been married, never been attended a church, and then one spouse in the marriage situation trusts Christ. And the other guy or the other woman is trying to figure out, how do I figure this out? How do I understand this? Now, this guy, he felt his marriage was being threatened because his wife had trusted Christ, and he thought it was all nonsense. So what did he try and do? After completing a thorough investigation for almost two years, he finds the historical evidence for Jesus and then finds a new faith in Christ. And he wrote a book as well, and there's been a movie produced about this. But there is ample historical evidence for you and I simply just to to, to believe that the Lord Jesus actually existed and did that sort of thing. Now, if he if he really did live... We have to come up with a conclusion as to why and who the Lord Jesus is. And there's three options, really. The first one is this, is that he was a con artist. In other words, he was some sort of religious charlatan who fabricated these miracles around him, and uh, he presented himself as a son of God, even though he wasn't, and he was a con artist that cheated people into, into following him. That's the one option. Number two... He was just an absolute lunatic. And that's what some people actually believed as well. And the third option is really a simple one. He is actually who he said he was, the Son of God. So that's my historical reason. Now let's look at the biblical reason because this becomes a bit more challenging. And I'm not going to get into some real serious proof that the Bible is the Word of God. I want to just for us to be practical here and just use our common sense a little bit. So first of all, how do we know that the Bible is the Word of God? This book that we hold in our hands, you know, I, I really wished, just, we take this book for granted. If, if I had one of the oldest books in the, uh, in the Library of Congress, and I could bring it here and, and show you, and you see it's old, and maybe it's five or six hundred years old, and we would show such reverence to this old book. It's dilapidated, the pages are falling apart, but it's got so much history. We would have respect for that. But you know, that book of about 500 years old is nothing compared to this Bible. This Bible has, 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 has letters and books in it that are 4,000 years old, that long from the book of Job is one of the oldest ones. We have tremendous history in our Bible. So how do we know that the Bible is the word of God? Well, five evidences that I have come up with, and they're simple. The first thing is this, the unity of the Bible. You see, when you read the Bible, I want us to remember that this is not just one book. This is a book of, uh, this is a compilation of a number of books. Forty different authors were actually involved in the production of this book. Uh, 
And it was written over 1,500 years. Think about that, 1,500 years. And um, it came in three different languages that were used originally to participate in the putting together of this book. And they were writers from different cultures and backgrounds. And, and yet every single thing written in the scriptures, in the Bible, agrees with one another. And this is a book of 66 different books that has been written over, four, over 1,500 years by four 40 different authors, and it's all united together. It doesn't contradict each other. Now, if I was to take one little town in the States, and everybody in that town was pretty much of the same background, maybe the same culture, the same uh, age group, whatever, they all knew each other. Now, if we asked them a couple of different questions... And, and, and questions about life and eternity and is there a heaven, is there a hell and that sort of thing. And I'm sure you would get as many different answers as you have people answering the question. Yet here we have people from various walks of life, different backgrounds, different cultures, different languages, different eras, and yet they all speak the same thing. That's tremendous. That's a miracle in itself, the unity of the Bible. Then I was thinking of fulfilled prophecies. You see, the Bible, again, is not like a novel where one guy thought at the beginning of his novel he's going to write a story and bring out different characters, and then we need to attract attention to one character, so we'll fabricate these prophecies that are going to happen beforehand. You see, that's what a novelist could do. But this book, it's impossible for that to happen because the people who wrote the prophecies lived a thousand years or longer before they actually took place. I want you to think about this. 354 prophecies fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Psalm 22, David said this, They pierced my hands and my feet. He's describing a crucifixion. Now, he never had his hands pierced or his feet pierced. But a thousand years before the crucifixion of Christ, he wrote those words. And the only way to understand that Psalm 22 is it was a prophetic psalm that spoke of Christ's death on the cross. I want to think about the longevity of the Bible, for example. The scriptures were banned and burned and ridiculed by rulers of every age, from Roman emperors to English monarchs. Yet God's truth could not be crushed. Even today, people, why are these places so afraid of the Bible? Why is it you can't bring a Bible or talk about it in many countries in the world today? Because they know it's powerful. They know it changes lives. God's truth could not be crushed. The New Yorker magazine said this, The Bible is the best-selling book of the year every year. Can you believe that? In whole or in part, the Bible has been translated into more than 2,400 languages, more than any other book ever. Now, what motivates people to translate this? The fact that it has changed their life and motivated them to see other people's lives change through the message of the Bible. What about the accuracy of the Bible? And this is something that is an ongoing thing. It's very interesting. Though the Bible is not a scientific or an archaeological textbook, it is remarkable to see time and time again how the Bible has been vindicated by scientific and archaeological discoveries. 
For example, if you read through the Old Testament, there's often mention of different tribal groups, different towns, and up until a certain time, these places never existed. Those peoples never, there was no history of, of these people existing at all. And yet as as archaeologists have gone through things, they have begun to find out that the biblical references to towns and various kings uh, have been proven through archaeological digs. And all of a sudden, the things that they didn't know existed in the Bible now have come to light. They're true. What about scientific references? And I was thinking about this as well. You know, the Bible talks about treasures in the snow. Now, I'm from Canada, and there's no treasures in snow. Have you ever tried driving in it? Actually, that's tr- that's untrue. There are treasures in the snow. The Bible talks about treasures in the snow. But most people, they look at a snowflake and think, oh, something more to shovel or something else. And there's something pretty about snow when it first falls, and that's about it. But as scientists develop ways of looking at things through microscopes, they began to discover that every crystal, that's what a snowflake is, has its own unique shape and design and look. There are no two snowflakes exactly alike. Now that's a miracle. And that is a treasure in the snow. And until microscopes were, were invented, we never knew that. What about this? Innumerable stars. The Bible talks about innumerable stars. Now, 2,000 years ago, the sky was, you could probably count the stars, at least estimate how many were in your vision. But as we got into scientific telescopes and we began to see beyond our own galaxy, into the next galaxy and the other solar systems. And and even just recently, they have discovered that there's billions more stars than they ever imagined that there possibly was. And we don't know the end of it. And you know what? We never will because that's eternity. And God said this a long time ago, innumerable stars. Proven from the Bible. What about this one? In 1492, Christopher Columbus, he was looking for the new world and so many people were concerned he's going to fall off the end of the earth. They thought the world was flat. But if they had read from their Bibles, it talks about the circle of the earth. In other words, the world, the earth, the physical planet you and I live on was even taught in our books in Isaiah that it was a round earth. So these things all demonstrate that we can have confidence in the word of God, the Bible. But the Bible also, reading the Bible produces faith. It changes lives. It convicts of wrong. And it brings comfort to the soul as well. No other book does that. Nothing like the Bible. So that's the power of the Bible. And then I was thinking of a personal reason. And, you know, this is really where the rubber meets the road because a lot of the stuff that we've talked about is is sort of removed because it's, it's, it's ideas and doctrine and that sort of stuff. But when it comes to the Christian faith, what was the most effective way of the early disciples of presenting the gospel uh, is that they went back to their own particular testimony 
They went back to their own experience when they witnessed these events that took place in their life. And that was the most powerful story to tell people who had no idea of what the gospel is all about. Now, I put this August 18th, 1975 down because that was the day that I trusted the Lord Jesus as my Savior. I was living in Saskatchewan at the time in in Canada. I was 16 years old, and uh, I had been in a troubled, troubled youth. My mom and dad divorced when I was 12 years old. And I remember um, saying to myself that from now on, I'm just going to do whatever I want. And if my parents ever raise a finger at me and say, listen, you shouldn't live that way or that, I'll just point my finger right back at them and say, listen, who are you to judge me? You just screwed up our family. You split up our household, our kids. Where, uh, the, my sister, I don't know where she's going to live. I don't know where I'm going to live. That was my response to that. And, of course, living that way gets you into trouble. By the time I was 12 years old, I was on 12 months probation for breaking and entering and theft. We have to break into cars and houses and steal things. And I was a juvenile delinquent. That's what the term was. Now, I came from a family of, of uh, four children. My brother was born in Amsterdam. My parents were from Holland and Germany, and they came over to Canada after the World War II. And then I had an, another sister that was born, and then eight years later I came along, and then my younger sister, who was two years older than I was. My older brother, who I had a great respect for, he was my older brother, and, uh, you know, he, uh, he had enough with family life. He didn't want any more of mom and dad. And when he was 16, uh, he moved out. He was 17, I think he moved out. So I was about seven years old. I didn't see him much after that. And he moved out to British Columbia, Vancouver. And he went head first into the world. Now, we didn't know any better, but we used to tease him. We thought he looked like Jesus because he had hair down to here. And, uh, I thought, that's what Jesus might have looked like, I guess from the pictures I've seen. And uh, so we used to tease him. That's what we thought he looked like. And he went off into the world, and he got into all sorts of nonsense out there. Now, I got into my own nonsense, and I, my mom couldn't handle me anymore, and so she shipped me off to my dad, and I was living with my dad. And uh, he, uh, we got a cassette tape in the mail, a cassette tape, that had a message on it, and it said on, he had written, my brother had written on it to mom and dad and family on one side of the tape, and on the other side it said, God bless you. And I thought, God bless you? What type of talk is that? We've never been into a church. We don't know anything about God. We don't, have any, we don't want to have anything to do with God. God bless you. This guy, and he told on the tape, how he became a Christian, how his life had been changed. And um, I remember sitting at the kitchen table with my dad, and I was 16 at the time. I said, Dad, he's in a cult. I'm going to have to rescue him. I said, would you let me go and drive and, and rescue him? He said, sure. I don't know why he did that. I was 16 years old. I just bought a car. I just got a driver's license. And I'm driving from Regina all the way to Vancouver. That's like from Minot, North Dakota to Washington. It's like a three-day's drive. And on top of that, I said to my dad, can I take my sister with me? 
my younger sister who was 14. So here are the two of us get into this car and we start driving out to British Columbia. We get out there and I got lost and I phoned him on a phone, a cell phone, I'm not a cell phone, a phone booth. And he came out to where we were and, uh, and as soon as he got out of his car, he gave out, gave me a great big hug. I thought, wow, this is different. And I looked at him and he had cut his hair shorter and his life was so, just looking at him, he looked changed. And so that afternoon he got us home and, uh, he had just, his wife had just given birth to their second child and he propped me up at the living room couch until two o'clock that morning. He told me everything he knew from the Bible and I was drinking it in. It was fantastic. And I was so ignorant of it. Like, I didn't know anything about the Bible. I was completely ignorant of this book. Just to show you how ignorant, I've probably said this before, but I remember the first Bible my brother gave me, and I remember flipping it open, and it, it flipped open to the apostle, the, the epistle of Paul the Apostle. And I figured, what on earth is an epistle? And I figured it out. I knew what an apostle was. And the best that I could come up with is that an epistle must be a female apostle. <laughs> that was how ignorant I was of, of a Bible. So my brother taught me what he knew about the scriptures. And, and, and uh, that night I went to bed. It was August 17th. I went to bed. And uh, I wanted to get saved because hearing what my brother had told me and witnessing the change in his life, I knew that whatever he had, I wanted to have it. I wanted to have this joy and this happiness that my brother had. And so I thought to myself, I'm going to pray. I'm going to try this out, this whole Christian thing. And uh, so I had a, a spare bedroom and a mattress just laid out on the floor. He was, you know, didn't have a whole lot of money. And we we all came to visit him. And and so I was just laying there on the on the on the bed on the floor. And I thought, I'm going to pray never prayed before in my life. And so I prayed and I said words like this. I said, Lord, I want to be happy. I want to be happy like my brother. I see he's got joy in his life and I don't have it. And I want to be happy. So can you please save me? And nothing happened. And I thought, well, maybe I should pray harder. So I got myself more excited. I prayed more, more fervently and, and still nothing happened. And then I thought at the end of that, I thought, Oh, I remember now. My brother told me that when I pray, I should pray in the name of Jesus. I thought that was the magic potion at the end of the prayer that would answer it. So I prayed it again, and only this time I tacked on in the name of Jesus. Still nothing happened. So I went to bed thinking kind of discouraged, depressed. I wanted to be saved. I wanted to be happy. And uh, so I went to sleep. The next morning I wake up. And I hear them singing outside my bedroom door. My sister, my younger sister Evelyn, um, apparently that night, the same night that I tried to get saved, she trusted the Lord and got saved. And they're all talking about this and singing and on the other side of my door. I'm thinking, oh boy. Now how, how did this work? I mean, I tried that and I didn't get saved and, and, and so I, I, I said to myself, you know, if I open that door, I know they're going to buttonhole me and they want to, you know, put the screws on me because I didn't trust Christ. And, and so I, I thought, I'll just tell them I got saved. Maybe I did. I don't know how it all works. Maybe it grows on you after a while. 
So I opened the door, and they said, Sid, did you hear? Evelyn trusted the Lord last night. Isn't that great? And I tried to sound excited, but I wasn't. And I said, well, you'd, you'd, you'd want to know also that I also trusted the Lord last night. It was like they didn't believe me right off the bat. I don't know why. I couldn't convince them. Now, one of the things that I had a problem with in my unsaved days is that I was a terrible, foul-mouthed individual. I used to take the Lord's name in vain every second sentence. Oh, Christ. Oh, God. Everything, something went wrong. Oh, God. Oh, Christ. And that was my vocabulary. And now I had made this profession of being a Christian. And all of a sudden, I was self-conscious of every time I took the Lord's name in vain. And it seemed I was doing it more often then than ever. And, and, and finally, I had to excuse myself and say, listen, I'm new at this thing. I'll get it sorted out. Don't worry. I'll get my mouth, you know, sorted out. And my brother said to me, he said, Sid, can we have lunch together? So we had lunch together. He says, Sid, are you sure you're a Christian? I said, man, I don't know. All I can say is, I know I want to be a Christian. I did everything you told me to do, and I'm still not saved. And then he said to me, boy, I don't know what to say. I've told you everything I know. I thought, no, you can't do that. You're the best theologian on the planet. You know everything about this Bible. He just got saved in me, but he he knew everything about it that I knew. And, And I thought, no, he says, I'll tell you what to do. There's a man preaching in this uh, church tonight, this, uh, this, this evening, on the seven churches of Asia. It's a ministry meeting. And you go there and tape it for me, because I have to work the afternoon shift. You tape it for me, and then I'll listen to it later. I thought, okay, sure, can't do me any harm. So I took my sister and my sister-in-law and the two nephews now, and uh, we go to this little gospel hall in Vancouver. Now, in those days, when you wanted to tape a meeting, you had a huge ghetto blaster. That was what I had. And I had hair down to here, and you saw me traping, traipsing right up to the front of the gospel hall, sat down the front seat, and put my ghetto blaster on the seat beside me, and I was ready to tape. Now, everybody thought, what well, has invaded here? <laughs> and so the man was preaching, and I remember listening to, just before he started preaching, I was, really what spoke to me is just the demeanor of the believers in the hall prior to the meeting. There was such a reverence and a respect for God and his presence that was there. And everybody quietly came in, waited for the thing to start, and I was sort of just seeing things for the first time. I saw they had verses on the wall like you guys do. And I started to read those verses, and I was beginning to think about my life. And I thought, Sid, man, you are such a sinner. You deserve to go to hell. That's what I thought. And I thought to myself, you know, Sid, if you don't get saved tonight, you are just going to have to go to hell, because that's what you deserve. So I thought, I'm going to pray again. Now, this, by this time, the meeting was halfway over. And I bowed my head between my knees And I began to think about my sin. And then I thought, you know what, Sid? You have no right to be in this place. You're in God's presence, and you don't fit here. And I thought, the better I get to the floor, the better for me. And I was almost on the floor, ready to pray. Now, the lady across the aisle from me 
was watching what was going on in my heart, in my life. And I could see her from the corner of her eye looking at me, and I just ignored it, and I thought, let me just pray. And I said words like this. I said, Lord, now I know that I'm a guilty sinner. I don't want to get saved because I want joy. I want to get saved because I need forgiveness. Would you please save me tonight in Jesus' name? I lifted up my head, got up off the floor, and the burden that I'd been carrying was gone. And I bumped my sister beside me. I says, I just got saved. I really got it this time. (laughs) She bumped my sister-in-law and went all the way down the row. And you know, the man almost lost his audience. But I, I had trusted Christ. August 18th, 1975, at 8.30 in the evening, sitting in the front seat of a little gospel hall in Vancouver, Canada. And I remember at the end of the meeting, the lady came to me. She says, did something happen to you today? I says, I just trusted Christ. I got saved. She says, you go tell the preacher. Now, this time, everyone had filed out, and he was at the back of the hall, and I was at the front, so I was one of the last guys out. And uh, I said to him, he says, did something happen to you? I says, I've trusted Christ. He says, oh, that's wonderful. And he gave me some verses. I don't remember what he said. But I wanted to get by myself. I said, do you guys have a quiet room or a bathroom or something around here? He says, yeah, downstairs in the basement. So I went down there, and I found a quiet spot all by myself. And I got my hands and knees and lifted up my heart to the Lord. I said, oh, God, thank you. Thank you for sending your son and for saving me tonight. You see, that's, that was my testimony. To whom should I go? He had the words of eternal life. Now, you see, this, this Easter morning, there is a man in the glory who is willing to receive all who come to him. And he says this invitation, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, and learn, upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Now this morning, I want to ask you a question. Is your soul at rest? And if your soul is not at rest this morning, I want you just to look outside in the world again. Do you see any answers out there? Is it the evolution nonsense? Is it the other nonsense? Is it politics, whatever? Is there anything that's going to actually give you the answer? I invite you this morning to take a fresh look at the claims of Christ upon your life and upon mine. May the Lord bless you this morning, and may you learn to trust in the Lord Jesus. May God bless you. Let's pray. Father, we enter your presence this morning once again to thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he lived a holy life, but we're thankful that that wasn't enough. He had to die. And even living a holy life and simply dying for us wasn't the complete picture. But we're thankful that this morning he's been risen from the dead, to demonstrate that you are satisfied with his work 
and he's been welcomed into your presence in heaven. And so this morning, our Father, we do thank you that there is an answer to the needs of man. And we pray that those that are here this morning, that they would find fresh uh, comfort, fresh enthusiasm, fresh determination to follow Christ. And if there's someone here not saved, we pray, Lord, that you would speak to their heart and bring them to Christ. We thank you for this day and ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.